Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable program. This program is the future of Medicaid in New Jersey. This is the first of two podcasts in this program. In this program, you'll hear the opening remarks from John Mooney, the CEO of NJ Spotlight, followed by a perspective from Heather Howard, a lecturer in public policy at Princeton University and the former commissioner of the New Jersey Department of Health. Those remarks are followed by panel one, the future of Medicaid in New Jersey, featuring panelist Rachel Cahill, a senior healthcare program officer of the Nicholson Foundation, Matthew Dioria, chief transformation officer of the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, Ev Liebman, director of advocacy for AARP of New Jersey, Erhart Prytower, senior vice president for government programs for Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, Joseph Vitali, a Democrat from Middlesex County who chairs the Senate Health, Human Services, and Senior Citizens Committee in the New Jersey Senate, and Joseph Young, Esquire, Executive Director of Disability Rights of New Jersey. The panel is moderated by Lilo Staten, healthcare writer for NJ Spotlight. This program is brought to you by AARP of New Jersey and participating sponsors Aetna, Horizon New Jersey Health, the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, RWJ Barnabas Health, and United Healthcare. At the lectern to introduce the program is John Mooney, CEO of NJ Spotlight. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Wow. Great crowd. This is uh, very exciting for us. Um, my name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of NJ Spotlight. Um, for those who don't know us, uh, we've been around for about seven years. We're a public policy news site, nonprofit public policy news site covering um, you know, major uh, policy issues in the state, obviously healthcare, but also education, public finance, energy, environment, housing, transportation. Uh, we've got plenty of issues in this state, as you well know, and um, we hopefully are, are covering them uh, with some context and some depth and some analysis that uh, hopefully serves the, the public like yourselves. We also, in our seven years, have been doing events such as this one. We've done close to 40 of them. Uh, maybe even more than 40, Steve, I'm not sure, uh, but in that area on a range of issues, uh, specific issues, uh, ranging from electric cars to charter schools to uh, actually our last event here was on uh, the ACA in general, and, and what was remarkable is that, that was the day, Heather, if you remember, it was the day that uh, the, the House was deciding whether or not to do a, a repeal vote. They didn't, but we were following it on Twitter, and um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Today, I don't think any news is being made around Medicaid other than us, so you're in the right place. Um, but uh, but it's, it's just, they're great events. We, we all live so much online these days. This is an opportunity, we like to call it live journalism, an opportunity to interact, actually see people in, in person and, and be part of the discussion, uh, you know, away from your, your uh, mobile phone and your computer. Um, the way it works is uh, panelists um, will be uh, speaking on, as, as, you, as you know in the program, on a couple of topics, broad and, and specific. Um, we also do like the interaction with the audience and, and the way we do it, if you haven't been to our shows before, uh, is we have index cards are on the, on the table and we have plenty more where, they, where those came from. If you have a question that you want to be part of the conversation, and I do say question as opposed to uh, commentary, um, Write it on a card. We'll be walking around the edges. Uh, Rachel, Holland, Steve Shallot, uh, and myself, and, and just sort of wave it, and we'll grab it from you, and we'll get it up to 
Lilo Stanton, our uh, healthcare reporter, who will be leading both discussions, and, and it works pretty well. Um, there is also on your uh, tables, please, there's some surveys, which are very useful for us in terms of what works, what doesn't. Um, as I said, we do a lot of these, and, and we learn something new every time. And it's really uh, great to have your feedback either way. Um, I also uh, want to do a little self-promotion on the back of your program is a little bit about us as uh, a, a, oh, look at everyone's turning, very good. Um, uh, we are member supported. Uh, we, as I mentioned, we're nonprofit. Uh, we have close to a thousand members. Um, and it's really uh, been, we started that about a year ago and it's really been transformative for us in terms of engaging folks. Um, you know, please join the community. There's some extra perks that come with it. You see those mugs over there. Um, you know, if, eye those babies and uh, you may get one. Um, but, um, but please join us. You can come onto our website. There's a, a donate button that takes you to something that looks very similar to what's printed there. I also uh, happy to sign you up uh, today on my own uh, computer. So, um, you know, we really need your support for NJ Spotlight to keep doing what it's doing. Um, and, and we also really need your engagement and, and the community it builds. It's really very exciting as a, as a reporter, I'm, I usually, uh, former print reporter, the, the engagement I had in the, with the community was usually somebody calling up complaining they didn't get their paper. Um, and this has really been great to have these discussions. I also um, want to highlight our sponsors of this event. Uh, and it's really critical. Uh, we w this wouldn't happen without uh, folks underwriting it and sponsoring. And to be honest with you, NJ Spotlight wouldn't exist without um, our supporters, uh, both nonprofit and for-profit. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about each one. Uh, AARP is one of our supporting sponsors. Uh, most of you are familiar with them. A few of, them, few of you are probably members of them. Uh, advocates, for advocates for solutions that help enable people to live in age as they choose. They're in every state. In, in New Jersey, they have, I think, 1.3 million members uh, is the number I have. Uh, they've obviously been very active in the whole ACA debate, um, have been opposing attempts to repeal it. Uh, and, and certainly have been uh, doing a lot of work around Medicaid and, and trying to preserve it, if not expand it. Uh, RWJ Barnabas, uh, the most comprehensive healthcare uh, delivery system in New Jersey, nine counties, 11 acute hospitals, three acute care children's hospitals, uh, leading uh, pediatric rehabilitation hospital, and a freestanding behavioral health center. Uh, also among the largest employers uh, in, the, in the state, private employers with more than 33,000 employees. The New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute, a good friend of uh, Spotlight's over the years, um, only independent, nonpartisan, multi-stakeholder advocate for healthcare quality in New Jersey, nonprofit organization like ourselves, convenes stakeholders across healthcare spectrum to promote policies, expand access, and control costs. Uh, Horizon Blue, Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know them well. Um, state's largest health insurer uh, covers 875,000 New Jerseyans. Uh, who rely on Medicaid. Uh, Aetna, um, who also, uh, I'll, I'll point to their, uh, they have a table in the back, um, is now third M MCO in New Jersey, uh, is, re receives statewide approval stat status, giving NJ Family Care recipients uh, an additional choice. Um, they also, uh, I think their CEO is here as well, so if you want to talk to them, um, in addition to uh, what they have provided in the back. And I want to point out that all of the sponsors have provided information uh, in, on different tables, including the Healthcare Quality Institute. Uh, their Medicaid 2.0 report is, is available for folks as well. And United Healthcare, uh, one of the largest providers of Medicaid coverage in the country, 
uh, and in New Jersey through the United Healthcare Community Plan, uh, providing over half a million members um, in New Jersey. So those are the folks, and, and it's just critical for us, uh, for Spotlight, and I think to have these kinds of discussions, uh, to have the sponsors is, is really an um, integral component to it, and, and I, I want to thank them very much for supporting us and, and uh, making this conversation possible. So let's get it going. Um, last time we had a, uh, uh, Heather Howard was, was part of our um, discussion um, centering on um, ACA repeal. We brought her back, repeat performance. Um, she's gonna give a talk, mostly an introduction. It's, it's uh, you know, some context to what's going on and, and where we're headed. She knows more about this stuff than anybody. Um, I met her as uh, when she was working, uh, Governor Corzine? Um, and the school funding formula. Yeah, right? school funding. Yeah, that was a good time. Um, and uh, but she certainly is a remarkable uh, person and, and friend of ours. And, and you will certainly going to learn a lot in the next few minutes about where where things stand. And it's a great way to kick off the event. So Heather, thank you, up. John. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John and NJ Spotlight. It's fabulous how much attention you give to healthcare. And I must say, John, your timing is impeccable. Last time, as you mentioned, we were here. Folks remember we were here and we were literally following on Twitter what was happening with the House consideration um, of the American Health Care Act. And today, actually, now it's not directly relevant to Medicaid, but it is in the sense that all of this is, is interconnected. This morning, um, President Trump is, is expected to issue his executive order on providing more flexibility under the Affordable Care Act. And, and it's going to be quite important for New Jersey to be following that news because it likely will um, run counter to many of our consumer protections, uh, what's, in, what's in the proposal. Of course, nobody's seen it yet, but what's been reported thus far. So the timing, I don't know if we should all agree for them to hold another one of these um, because it will just harbinge something else happening at the federal level, John. Um, but thank you again. And Lilo, you have a great healthcare reporter um, on the case. So today, I thought I would quickly run um, through where we are today with Medicaid, what's the status of the Affordable Care Act, what's going on in Washington, and why, of course, that's so relevant to what we're talking about in New Jersey, and then look ahead a little bit and set the table. You have two fabulous panels coming up, so hopefully setting the table for that um, discussion. So what does Medicaid look like today? One in five New Jerseyans. I mean, it just, it's worth just pausing to remind ourselves how significant the Medicaid program it is and how many lives in the state it touches. And one in five, but it's actually one in two low income, one in three children. It's almost half of the childbirths in the state. Um, and Medicaid has really grown as a result of the ACA and the state's decision to expand Medicaid. So now we're at 1.8 million uh, people that are members, and it's dramatically um, helped reduce the uninsured rate um, uh, in the state. So this is sort of this is the good news story of of how things are working and how strong the program is. And Medicaid plays a critical role in our healthcare system. It's not just coverage for these 1.8 million people. That's important in and of itself, but it's support for the healthcare infrastructure in the state and our safety net system, all the way from clinics to hospitals to nursing homes. And a reminder, although we love to pick on the feds, that the feds help fund Medicaid, even though it does so, does so under a formula that we don't you know, get as many advantages as other states, what this shows you is what is our federal matching rate, and it shows you what percentage of our Medicaid is funded by the federal government. So we're, um, we're the, the, the clear state, the white state, and we're a 50-50 state, meaning for every, the federal government matches our spending on Medicaid. The states, the darker the colors you get, the dark orange gets 
over 70% some of those states. So the states are putting in up to 30 cents and getting 70 cents. And that's a reflection. It's a, the formula goes back to the statute. The law was enacted over 50 years ago, and it's a reflection of the wealth of the state, even though, of course, as we recognize, New Jersey may be, uh, on average, a wealthy state. We know we have significant needs. So something to remember, there is significant federal money here. We wish we could, we could uh, so we're always thinking about how do, we, how do we leverage more federal money within this context. Um, now, what does Medicaid spending in New Jersey look like? I, I knew some of this, but even as I was preparing today, I was surprised. Our, um, our Medicaid um, physician fee ratio is 0.45 Medicaid to Medicare, meaning we're reimbursing physicians really low. We're 49th or 50th in the country in what we're paying physicians on, in our Medicaid program. And um, so that affects physician participation in the program. It, it, it affects access to services. So something to think about. We're a generous state in many ways, but not in our physician reimbursement. Um, another interesting fact is that almost half of all long-term care spending in the state um, is for home and community-based care, which is something that we should be really proud of, that we've done a much better job. I'm looking at Ev and Matt and people who've been working on this for years. Um, we've done a much better job um, redirecting our uh, long-term care funding towards home and community-based services. And, and then, of course, that we're 95% of our beneficiaries are in managed care plans. So we're a heavy managed care state, and I think we'll get into that later. But what is that? You know, that's important when we think about what are our policy levers to affect delivery system reform and find efficiencies. Um, also, just also worth remembering that although the vast majority of enrollees in Medicaid are adults and children, um, the majority of our expenditures are on the elderly and disabled. And this is true nationally. This is not unique to New Jersey, but it's just important to remember um, when, we, when we think about where the money is being spent and think about how to, be, um, how, to, how to be efficient with the dollars we have. A few other issues that I'll leave you with. One is, of course, the opioid crisis. And here, I, I included this first infographic, not to say that we're in great shape, because, just because we might be doing better than the national average. Um, still a crisis here in, in New Jersey and an area where New Jersey has been active. You know, we've been increasing provider rates. There's been structural reform at the state level that's just beginning, changing the way the departments handle these issues, and significant investments in, in different um, programs to address the opioid crisis. So I put that on your agenda as something to be thinking about. And then just this week, um, the Trump administration granted a waiver request from West Virginia to end what's called the IMD exclusion. And it's, that makes it sound really complicated, but it basically, they're going to be opening up um, more treatment beds, we hope, in large residential facilities. Um, New Jersey has a similar request in, and if they treat New Jersey like West Virginia, we should be getting approval. That would be the hope. So this is just an area of activity that, that I would flag for you all to follow. So where are we on repeal and replace? You know um, that recently, just on September 30th, it, the latest efforts for legislative repeal and replace uh, died. But it's worth remembering that this Graham-Cassidy bill, which was the last version that, that, was, that was pending, would have been done significant damage to New Jersey. It would have eliminated the Medicaid expansion and would have block-granted much of federal health care spending and would have done so in a way that would have redistributed funds from high-spending states to low-spending states. So that probably won't surprise many New Jerseyans. That's a way to take, you know, that's a way, that really disadvantages New Jersey and takes money away from especially the northeastern states. And um, so something to watch, even as this, even though this legislative proposal is dead, I'm a believer that these proposals never really die. They're zombie, zombie plans and will come back. So efforts to, to, to limit federal spending are going to come back 
and especially this issue of not only limiting on the whole, but redistrib redistributing and taking from high spending states to give to low spending states is something that we need to be very vigilant about. And this, this to me is not really even a partisan issue. This is a New Jersey issue. How do we make sure that New Jersey is not disadvantaged? Um, and even though that legislation died and the quirks of the, the Senate process uh, means that they likely will not be taking it up again this year, um, I really do think we need to think about the threats to the ACA more broadly. It may not come legislatively. The, the, the purpose of this cartoon is to show you that there are many tools if the goal is to undermine the, uh, the Affordable Care Act. Legisla legislation is one of them, but uh, the other, other tools include neglect and sabotage. And um, we're seeing signs of that already. And, and Lilo actually broke a story today on what are going to be the impact of the Trump administration's cuts to outreach and enrollment programs and to navigator programs. And it was, I think she said it was over 60% in funding cuts that are coming to the state. So cuts to outreach and enrollment. Um, we're going to be seeing later this morning an executive order that likely will undermine our individual market. Um, and may raise um, prices, is likely to raise prices for people who have pre-existing uh, illnesses. What other threats are there? Well, CHIP is, CHIP's reauthorization just expired at the end of September, and New Jersey will run out of money next spring. So that may seem like it's far off, but it's really not that far off because the state has to plan months in advance for funding for the program. So I implore everyone to be following what's happening on uh, CHIP. And then finally, even if even if the, even if uh, Congress can't uh, repeal the Affordable Care Act legislatively, there are federal budget proposals that would impact our our Medicaid program, and there are even suggestions that one of the ways that we'll pay for tax reform will be to cut um, health care programs. So, so the the key takeaway here is that threats to health care have not ended, even with that September 30th. So much attention went to that. Um, and so as we look ahead, really uh, continued uncertainty at the federal level, both on a policy and funding perspective. What does that mean for our healthcare system? Uh, there's also this call for more state flexibility, which I think all of us would love flexibility to do things in New Jersey way. With my old hat as a, New Jersey, as a state official, I would have loved flexibility. But how meaningful is flexibility if it comes with um, with fewer resources, if you have less money to spend to do that. Of course, we're going to have a new governor next year, and what will be his or her approach to this new policy environment? And finally, I, you know, I, who's, I was telling some friends, let's not all be, let's be somewhat um, optimistic today. There's really a recognition now that um, there are so many factors, social factors that affect health status, and how can we think more broadly about improving health? And we're, you've got some folks on, on your panel today who are going to be trying to help us think broadly. So as we look ahead, um, exciting ideas out there for how, how we can do more, even as we deal with these fiscal constraints. So I hope that was a helpful, quick overview, and I look forward to hearing the discussion. Thank you. And I want to uh, introduce Lilo Stanton, who's going to, who right now is uh, shepherding everyone in their seats. But there's Lilo. Um, she has been our healthcare writer how long now, Lilo? Yeah, um, and I've, I've known her for a long time and from her days working at the Asbury Park Press. Yep. And she um, has since had held a, a couple of other jobs, including in the State House. But she joined us and, and has really done an amazing job, uh, both in terms of the reporting coverage, um, as well as these events where she really leads a great discussion. And I'll let you introduce folks or they can introduce themselves. But I think we're ready to go. Lilo, you, you good? Hello, hello. 
my there question. We go. Yes, it is. All right, Lilo, it's all Good yours. morning. Um, I, I think we happen to be missing one panelist. Uh, she probably is running late, yeah. Um, but we will. We can. We can certainly give it a give it a start here. Um, thank you very much, everybody, for for joining us today. I have to talk this way so I can talk into my mic. Um, Heather did give us a great overview of sort of why we decided to to focus on Medicaid in this conference. Um, you know, I write all the time stories about uh, various healthcare programs that are being cut, federal funding streams that are being cut, changes on the ground. Um, the so much of this comes back to Medicaid, and I think Heather did a nice job of explaining how these different populations are served by Medicaid, some of which we don't always think about. Um, for example, uh, seniors in long-term care, um, because you know, we always think about Medicare for seniors, but of course there is a, there's a Medicaid component, um, and that's clearly a very large component. Um, and I think you know, this was a, a particularly important given the time uh, that we're in and all the changes that we're seeing, um, not just the federal changes, but also so many regulatory shifts that we're experiencing, um, whether it's stuff on a state level, whether there are departmental moves like the shift of uh, the Division of Mental Health and Addiction Services, or sort of more systemic shifts like a change to value-based care. Um, it's, a, it's such a time of change. Um, and of course, we're going into a period where we will have a new governor. So we thought it would be helpful to lay down some, some you know, ideas for the, uh, whichever transition team is working on this next. You know, we're here to be helpful. Um, but I want, the other thing that, you know, we're sort of thinking about this as far, we, we entered this uh, conference thinking about the question of, is Medicaid sustainable in New, in, uh, New Jersey? And um, there's sort of a sense that it is, it is not, and it's in danger, and it's constantly under attack, uh, the funding on a federal and sometimes state level. Um, but when I talked to the state officials about this, who, who we invited to participate today, but uh, the, the Megan Davey from the Medicaid system was not able to join us. But um, they, they told me that you know, there, there are other ways to look at this. They pushed back a little on that. And they pointed out that the cost per person in New Jersey of Medicaid is growing much slower than the national average. Um, so we're actually one of eight states uh, with the lowest budget uh, Medicaid growth per, budget, per state budget. Um, and our spending per person actually declined between 2000 and 2016, 2006 and 2016, uh, I believe by six, nearly 16% despite inflation in, in uh, health care overall. Um, so their suggestion is, you know, the growth of the program is what is really driving, the, the growth in the number of enrollment is really, and the, and, the, the dri and the rising costs are what are driving sort of growth in the program overall. So we'll talk about all this with this, uh, with this excellent panel we have here. Um, Matt Deoria is the Chief Transformation Officer from the New Jersey Healthcare Quality Institute. I love that title, Chief Transformation Officer. Can't say it, but I like it. Um, Joseph Vitale, everybody knows, Senator Vitale, Chair of the Senate Health and Human Services and Senior Citizens Committee. Um, Ev Liebman, uh, Director, President of Government, Senior Vice President for Government programs, at her, I'm sorry, I'm reading somebody else's title, Director of Advocacy 
I just promoted you, I think, three times there. Um, Director of Advocacy at AARP. Joe Young, Executive Director of Disability Rights New Jersey. And Erhard Pretower, the Senior Vice President for Government Programs. There we go, at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. And Erhard um, serves on a national panel that, that addresses uh, Medicaid issues and runs the Medicaid program portion of Horizon's portfolio, I believe. So with that, um, I thought we'd start with a little history. Um, Senator Vitale may not be able to stay the full time, so I, I'd like to, to give it to him first and ask a little bit about how we got here um, to the program we have today. New Jersey has a very sort of interesting and I would say rich history when it comes to um, ensuring vulnerable people. Um, and a lot of that is, is due to Senator Vitale's efforts. So tell us about how we, how we got to what, the program we have today. Thanks, Lila, and thank you for the conference again. And uh, Heather did a great job in really teeing this up and framing it the way we ought to be thinking about it. Uh, New Jersey is, uh, uh, two years ago, I testified in, in front of uh, Congress uh, about the reauthorization, maybe two or three years ago, maybe more than that. Um, and New Jersey was criticized, and I was criticized by extension for what they considered to be, you know, New Jersey being a generous state, too generous in terms of what they're providing uh, by way of, uh, of, of access to care, particularly in the SCHIP program. And it was, we, are at, our, we cap out at 350 of FPL, uh, and one of the members of the committee of another party uh, from Montana criticized New Jersey, said, well, why are you so generous? How can you spend that kind of money on individuals at that kind of poverty level? And I reminded him gently that, you know, Montana is not New Jersey, and, you know, we're, our cost of living here is what it is, and I can't fix that. Uh, and so it's expensive to live in New Jersey, therefore access to affordable health insurance is, much, is, is as important as it is in Montana, uh, but we earn, uh, and our cost of living here, whether it's housing or transportation or taxes or whatever, uh, drives that number and drives that consideration. Um, and so we've always been sort of criticized for that, and fortunately we have, they've, they've reauthorized that chip over, over the years, now it's up, to it's up for debate again, and there are some talk, there's some talk about what that deal looks like. Uh, which is troubling, uh, and we can get into that later. But we started out in 98 when I first got into office, and we, uh, I co-sponsored the Kid Care program, which was the beginning of the SCHIP program for New Jersey. And at that time, we were only for kids, only children, uh, and it was at 150 of the federal poverty level. Soon thereafter, and to her credit, Governor Whitman sought a waiver, and this was a bipartisan effort. You know, the original SCHIP legislation of Congress was uh, Clinton-Gingrich, uh, deal. Uh, so she applied for a waiver and we increased it to 350 of the federal poverty level over time. And we saw an avalanche of kids coming in. Uh, a few years later when we did some health care reform and we allowed parents to enroll and we sought that waiver and through legislation we got that done. Uh, we were ensuring parents of low-income children up to 200% of poverty level. And, that's, and that brought a lot more kids in. Because families were enrolling as, as families. Um, and so we had low-income parents, we had low-income children, and we're doing really well. Uh, fast forward and seven so years ago, uh, Governor Christie reduced, you know, who had the waiver, reduced the, the parents in SCHIP to 130, I think, of FPL. Also changed some of the ways in which they were re-enrolled. And so, you know, we're counting income toward your eligibility. Uh, it was, they made the decision that a child support would be considered earned income. It was kind of crazy, right? It's awful. Uh, so once that happened, uh, automatically, you know, literally hundreds, if not more, 
you know, women, uh, single women, who were receiving child support, some probably for the first time for a number of years, uh, were kicked off the program because they kicked them over the eligibility number. So we've been, the state's done a great job. There are over 800,000 kids in Medicaid or SCHIP or some hybrid form of that. Uh, so we've done real well. Uh, we get, uh, as a state, other states' money uh, that they don't spend as, they don't enroll as well as we do. And so we're in pretty good shape for now, uh, even though they haven't reauthorized SCHIP. But uh, we've done a great job, uh, everyone in this room and a number of governors, uh, making sure that we get this done. Governor Christie, to his credit, accepted the expansion. And so we have you know, many more kids uh, and those adults without children now enrolled in Medicaid, which has made a big difference in their lives. But it's under attack. It's under assault. Every other week, there's a crazy proposal from Washington. Uh, and it puts not just us, the policymakers and legislators, on edge, but if you think about the families who pay attention to this and wonder whether or not it is that they're going to have health insurance uh, taken away from them. So, Thank you. I think we have our, our panelists. No, it's all right. It gives, me, it gives me an opportunity to tell. This is Rachel Cahill from the Nicholson Foundation. Um, and uh, we were, thank you. Everybody knows about the traffic. I'm assuming that was the issue. Um, I wanted, this is also a good chance for me to, to note there are index cards on the tables. And we will um, take questions. So if you can write them up, we'll, we'll get them to John or somebody, and, and they'll get them to me. And at some point, we'll get to those in a little bit. But um, index cards on the table. I forgot to mention that. So um, Matt, let's, uh, I, I, I was going to give you guys all a few minutes to talk about the work you do. And I you know, kind of forgot about that too. My, uh, sorry, it's been one of those mornings. But um, tell us a little bit about your role uh, at FQHC, F, sorry. Yeah, QI. QI. That's why we call it QI for short, um, I think. Sure. Um, so yeah, and, and why, why you guys uh, decided to do the Medicaid, we'll, we'll talk more about Medicaid 2.0, which is a, a program that they, a platform, a blueprint for the future that they put together. Um, but sort of what led to that? Sure. Um, actually, it's perfect timing. It, uh, the Nicholson Foundation has done a tremendous amount of work over the last 10, 15 years with uh, Medicaid and individual projects came to the Quality Institute and asked, could you do something more um, global with Medicaid? Look at the entire system. What's, what's working? What isn't? What's working in other states? Um, and bring those ideas to New Jersey. And over the last 18 months or so, we've done that. Our report, which is out there, uh, includes 24 recommendations, um, five of which we've been actively pursuing. And I'll just recite them real quickly. The first is an Office of Healthcare Transformation to essentially bring together the strategic and financial decision-making for all New Jersey healthcare, not just Medicaid, state employee benefits, corrections, all under one office. Uh, there's still, in our opinion, and in a lot of the opinion of the people in this room, uh, a lot of disjointed, chaotic arrangements that um, are temporary uh, and not formalized in the state. And you know, without that, you, you get um, bad results. Um, the second recommendation, uh, which we think is fundamental, is building value-based purchasing into our managed care contracts. In fiscal year 18, the health plans will start, will by that time be receiving about $10 billion of Medicaid money. Um, right now, they, they've got performance bonus incentives in their contract, but they don't have specific in their contract things like uh, bundled payments, 
patient-centered medical homes, these ideas that we think on the value-based purchasing side are really important. They may be doing them, um, but they're not formalized, and there's no state evaluation of those, uh, those models of care. Uh, the third, uh, as Heather mentioned in her intro, 42% of all births are paid for by Medicaid. So we have uh, a project where we're trying to build an episode of care with many of the people in this room who've given their time, and we really appreciate it, uh, to essentially get the incentives right between the hospital, the OB, and the support services that are out there for the Medicaid population. Um, the fourth is data transparency. We did a 50-state survey just to see how states report Medicaid data, and what we found is that South Carolina by far has a, probably the best system, and we're working with uh, the Center for State Health Policy and Rutgers and the state legislature to bring that kind of model into New Jersey. And the last uh, that I'll mention is the patient-centered medical home for medically complex children. Um, coordinating care and benefits for that population uh, is an important function that's not been uh, really embraced in New Jersey in any meaningful way. So we'd like to bring that model to New Jersey as well. So those are what we're working on right now. I will, uh, just a couple other quick points. Other issues that came up during our work was the eligibility system in Medicaid and its dysfunction. Um, one of the things we're noticing, because we continue to do research on Medicaid, is that a, a great you know, uh, example of unintended consequences. Presumptive eligibility came along. It's been in Medicaid for years, but it really got um, enhanced with the ACA. And the idea was you're going to have all these folks coming in and you know, the eligibility process at the county welfare office or Xerox, which is now going to be Maximus, um, may not be speedy enough to get them enrolled. And so we want them to get care. We want providers to get paid. Um, what we're seeing is that that system's being continually used and, and the patients aren't getting into the managed care plans in a timely way. So we still have a lot of fee-for-service that Medicaid is paying for. So hospitals are seeing a lot of that money in federally qualified health centers, but there's a clear um, opportunity there to improve care coordination, particularly on the maternity side where we see a lot of deliveries are still occurring in fee-for-service and a lot of neonate business is still occurring in fee-for-service. Um, and the other is just pharma. Um, as much as uh, you know, there's been some, I guess, curtailment of the growth in expenditures for things like hepatitis C, um, there's still a real challenge there uh, to try and get that under control. We've been working with our par partners in pharmaceuticals uh, to help unlock the, the black box of the PBM. Because we think that's where there's maybe some real opportunity. New Jersey's got five PBMs for its five health plans and one for um, the state health benefits. And we'd really like to understand better how that works and where there might be some efficiencies there. And I think we now have a new PBM sort of manager on the state level that is supposed to have the, the secret codes to unlocking that black box, as I understand it. Um, so we're going to, you know, money sh savings should be raining in yes. shortly. Yes, yes. Um, I understand. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of good things there that we're going to dig into, including some of those nuts and bolts things about how the program works for, for consumers. Um, before we get there and before we get to cost drivers, um, Rachel, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about Nicholson's sort of work and, and in your focus on, on vulnerable populations and, and sort of how Medicaid fits into that. Sure. So as Matt mentioned, one of our um, initiatives that we're supporting is the Medicaid 2.0 project. But more broadly than that, um, we are focused specifically on health and early child care 
um, for vulnerable populations and just in New Jersey. So we just focus on giving grants in New Jersey. And we really try and identify areas where there's um, opportunity to make systems change and to make things sustainable. So where we can, we'd love to partner with the state um, to make sure that our agenda is in line with what they're interested in so we can help to support them and to fill in gaps um, that they've identified. We've also, um, obviously, as Matt mentioned, data is huge. Um, we've funded the Center for State Health Policy to do a number of different reports um, looking at the Medicaid data. And I think that those have helped to drive some of the um, agenda over the last um, number of years. Um, another area that we've been supporting uh, were the Medicaid ACOs, um, which you know have had interesting you know, ups and downs, but um, we've you know, committed to funding Camden and Trenton. And now we're moving into looking to support um, other community health coalitions throughout the state. So we're funding Patterson, and we just reached, recently um, put an REI out to identify other communities. And looking more to um, identify where coalitions can come together around specific public health initiatives, um, as opposed to just focusing on care management of uh, the Medicaid population. Um, so we're, we're, we try and, and think of ways when our money is no longer there. So that involves, you know, hopefully bringing in proof of concept and return on investment on pilot projects that can then be scaled um, and either funded uh, by Medicaid or by the plans, perhaps. <laughs> um, and so that's really where we're trying to, um, to leverage our, our funding dollars. Thank you. Um, we're going to, yeah, Erhard, we're going to have a lot of questions for you. But before we do, sorry, um, Joe, let's tell us a little bit about some of the cost drivers um, and how, how the disabled population fits into this picture in Medicaid. So uh, thanks for the invitation and the opportunity to speak. Um, so I'm very old and my legal practice <laughs> probably just doesn't predate Medicaid. Um, so over the years, I've seen a change in how things have gone on. So when I first was doing legal services, I would, my clients would come in with piles of medical bills, and our response was to do bankruptcy, because that was pretty much the only response. Then it morphed into trying to get people insurance and trying to get people with pre-existing conditions any kind of insurance at all, um, and usually not, so then we'd do the bankruptcy again. Um, at the state, as, as the center has indicated, the state has done very well and has added more and more um Program. So we've gradually moved over a system where a few people got really, really good services. Some, a lot of people got suboptimal services. And then there's still a whole bunch of people that got no services at all. Um, and I think Heather's slide indicated that I think two out of five people with disabilities received Medicaid. I think it's like nine out of 10 people with disabilities with serious and persistent lifelong chronic disabilities receive Medicaid. And, and so now we have a system where, again, a few people get really, really good services, a very and, and a very large um, percentage of the population gets suboptimal services. And at the moment, we're kind of on the brink about whether this is going to be able to work or not the, during the transition to fee-for-service that we have here. Um, but virtually nobody in New Jersey at the moment with a long-term severe and chronic services gets nothing. There aren't people sitting at home anymore with no services at all, waiting for seven or eight years after they graduate from um, high school to get any kind of services to be reintegrated back in the community. But it's also, you have to understand that as in Medicaid is part of the system, so is everything else. Um, if the housing isn't there, the health be, the deteriorates. If the health deteriorates, the housing is going to deteriorate. 
uh, we've got child custody, family disputes are all integrated into this whole housing and health care and services and all the other social supports that individuals need. Um, so at the moment, it's a, and so actually our big problem at the moment is trying to get people who are on managed care to keep the managed care benefits and to keep the managed care companies at bay from terminating or reducing some of the benefits that people are getting. Mm -hmm. So the, at least there's been progress over the, over the years. And then making sure that everybody's getting something. The question is whether they're getting enough or the amount they're going to need and how sustainable that's going to be. Ev, let's talk about um, long-term care. I am, or for seniors in particular, but um, I'm always shocked to see what percentage that is of Medicaid. And partially because it's so expensive, right? But tell us about that. Um, yeah, and thanks, Lilo, um, and thanks to New Jersey Spotlight for organizing today's conference. It is really timely and so important. Um, you know, AARP got started pre-Medicaid and pre-Medicare uh, when a retired educator out in California uh, became very disturbed uh, to find her colleagues uh, literally living in chicken coops without any type of health care. That's a true story. I've That's seen that advertised. That's a true story, yeah. Um, and uh, so she, in her 70s at the time, decided she would try and do something about it. Um, and after many attempts and uh, uh, a long period of time, she was able to identify uh, a carrier that, in fact, would put together a plan for retired teachers in California. Um, and that's really how AARP started. So that has been core to our mission uh, and why uh, as Heather mentioned, uh, we not only fought for the ACA, uh, but we waged a very vigorous campaign uh, against the various repeal and replace efforts, uh, in part because of the serious consequences of the Medicaid proposals. Um, you know, Medicaid covers many more lives in, in New Jersey and in this country uh, than Medicare does. It is the primary... Uh, system of support for long-term services uh, and supports. Um, and on average, uh, one in five uh, seniors uh, will depend on Medicaid for long-term services and supports as they age. Um, and the pressures on the system are going to increase in part because um, folks are living longer, which is a good thing. Um, but at the same time, I think today's boomers are going to start turning 80 in less than 10 years. Um, and uh, given the rise in healthcare costs generally, uh, that is going to put uh, some pressures on the system. The CBO estimates that Medicaid will increase by about 6% a year in costs um, going out into the future. Um, as you heard from Heather, um, uh, while only about 6% of Medicaid enrollees uh, access the long-term services and support system, it accounts for over 42% of the costs. Um, and so the question of sustainability, how we can spend our money more wisely, uh, is certainly front and center, not only for uh, our elders as they need the system, but that pressure uh, puts uh, strain on the system for everyone else. And so um, 
We, uh, we, we are working with the state. We obviously uh, work at the federal level as well uh, to take a look at what types of delivery system reforms and other policy initiatives uh, we can take to not only provide better services, but uh, at lower costs. And um, I'll talk about it more, but I just wanted to flag for everyone uh, back in 2011, AARP, along with the SCAN Foundation, put together the first in the country scorecard on long-term services and supports, looking at every state in the nation, uh, precisely to highlight uh, what are the best practices, who's doing well, who can do better. Um, and there's a lot of information that New Jersey can look at in terms of how we can do better and have the highest performing system. That's good. Um, we we're considering Spotlight is talking about a conference on long-term care too. So stay tuned. We will keep everybody posted on that. Um, thank you, Earhart. Um, I it, it always shocks me how much of a role um, uh, commercial plans now play in in Medicaid and Horizon in particular, of course, in New Jersey. Um, tell us a little bit about your your presence in this in this program and and how what you're seeking to do there. Yeah, we, um, so I oversee about 1.1 million New Jerseyans, Medicaid and Medicare for Horizon. Um, and just a couple of points of what we've done, and there's a lot of ideas on a go forward basis. As Lilo said, I also serve as the chairman of the board for the Medicaid Health Plans of America. So that's a big uh, trade association organization out of Washington, DC, as you can imagine, a lot going on there as well. But, um, you know, we're focused really on some of the basic things, uh, quality, we've invested a lot in quality and moved uh, all of the quality measures really forward over the last couple of years. We've done that, I've invested uh, in over 300 field-based care managers now. And uh, with technology, they can take the full power of the health plan out into the communities with people, and they can create care plans, they can leverage community resources, social determinants of care, we're moving and investing in those directions uh, quite heavily. And the impact, the costs, and all the related things along that uh, line are, are benefiting. Uh, Value-based care, as we mentioned earlier, is something that's important. Um, at the end of this year, we will probably have about 175,000 members in a value-based care arrangement. There's a number of those uh, that, that, uh, that exist, but generally speaking, we're sort of pushing forward to fully aligned uh, arrangements between us and providers. Uh, and then there's a lot of innovation, uh, technology, uh, mobile. Uh, we've uh, deinstitutionalized over a thousand people uh, and kept them in the community from nursing facilities. Significant savings for the state when you do that, uh, but also a greater quality of life um, and more sustainability and all that other stuff as well. So we think on a go-forward basis, uh, a lot of the ideas are being shared around integration, behavioral health, duels, a lot of great opportunity. But, and I've worked in many, many states, New Jersey's got a very good program. There's never perfect, uh, always opportunity to continue to move forward. But New Jersey's got a wonderful foundation from a Medicaid perspective. That's good to hear, that's very good to hear. Um, let's. Let's circle back to some of these other cost drivers um, because I think it, Heather mentioned, and I feel like we can't really have this conversation without digging in a little more to the opioid crisis. Um, and I, I, I don't know, Senator, if that's something, can you talk a little bit about 
how what you're seeing from um, from just from a you know from a legislative perspective. I, I know we've talked about some of the calls that you get um, from people and and you know desperate for help and and sort of where Medicaid comes into that because I know Medicaid is a big payer um, for for care, but it's not always as easy as people would like it to be. Well, on the thank you. Um, on the opioid side of all that and, and the epidemic, it's, and Heather laid this out uh, perfectly in her presentation with respect to the IMD exclusion. And the governor has asked for that, and we don't know if that will ever happen, but uh, it's important, important for those who are uh, uh, enrolled in Medicaid to access residential treatment when it's appropriate. Uh, but I think that the, the focus real ought to be, and we, we talk about residential treatment in general, but in the Medicaid population, not everyone needs to be in a residential setting to, to be intended to uh, attempt recovery. And just, just to clarify, the IMD exclusion is, is essentially, it's a federal rule that, uh, I forget the exact number, but it, it... 16, yeah. If you have 16 or more beds, you can't, uh, you get reimbursed for Medicaid. Right. So, so, so I don't know what facility doesn't have more than 16 beds. Right, I was going to say. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, so that, there's that. But on the other hand, you know, Medicaid assisted therapies uh, and outpatient IOP is covered generally, I think, in Medicaid. Is that right? So the, that's important, right? And I think we have to focus on MATS, on, on Medicaid assisted therapy, is extremely important. The governor's done a good job of doing that lately. It's something that we've been talking about for a number of years that not everyone who is seeking to be in recovery uh, needs to go away to a residential facility for a prescribed period of time. Uh, it depends on. On your on your uh, addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or something else, so but I think in terms of the Medicaid population, you know what what's frightening to me is the discussion in Washington about you know rolling back uh, the the resources for Medicaid in general and what that means, whether it's a block grant or some per capita block grant or some other thing, uh, what effect that will have on Medicaid across the board, and the effect it'll have on the Medicaid population. Uh, specifically with respect to the opioid crisis. And, you know, we are, n and we're no nowhere near seeing light at the end of the tunnel on this epidemic. Uh, there is someone today who will probably overdose tomorrow. Uh, there are literally thousands of people who can't get treatment. Uh, and, and, and look, if you have a commercial policy or if you have enough cash, you can get in. Uh, but if you're uninsured or if you're on Medicaid, largely you cannot. Uh, except for the benevolence of a few providers that may or find a better two here or there, and we get phone calls for that all of the time. Uh, so it, it's a, you know, it's a crisis. But you know, a, but just if you want to digress on the opioid issue for a moment, you know, this sort of that's sort of the back end of all this. It's the treatment piece and the recovery piece, which for people who are uh, have this uh, awful addiction, this will be a lifelong struggle. For some, it'll be a little bit of a struggle. For others, it'll be a lifetime struggle that'll be really serious for them. Uh, and we need to acknowledge that. We also need to think about and, and work very diligently on the front end in terms of prevention uh, and, and treatment. And prevention means, and you know, the governor signed one of the bills, my bills some, a couple years ago, that required the Department of Education to develop evidence-based programs for every grade level. So, because you talk to a sixth grader differently, you talk to a 12th grader. And so we're gonna throw the DARE program, God willing, out the window, or the LEAD program, which is the new DARE program in New Jersey, out the window. I talk about evidence-based uh, ways in which to talk to students. That's a longer-term strategy that we have to use. We did the same thing with seatbelts, with alcohol, with drunk driving, you know, all that. Over time, young people got it. It was part of the mantra in every school year, and not just in health class, but it be integrated in other classes as well. So we interact with kids. They get this message over time. And eventually, 
will be saving some kids from uh, from whether it's pills or heroin or something else. So I mean, there's the, and everything in between. So it's treatment, it's recovery, it's uh, education, it's prevention, all those sort of four legs of the chair uh, that we've been trying to develop as a strategy. These are evidence-based strategies that we're we're using. It's still an awful thing uh, with fentanyl now and. I mean, they're taking fentanyl and putting it in baking soda. Just forget about heroin, right? Heroin's bad enough. They're just taking a little couple of grains of fentanyl, putting that in baking soda, and then selling that to people. Uh, and they're overdosing, you know, like crazy. So um, the answer is we don't have all the answers yet. Trying to integrate all these programs, and Linda, and Linda at the Quality Institute just earlier this year, I met with her and some of her team to talk about where the gaps are in terms of the opioid crisis and where are we, what are we missing, what could we be doing better uh, and using evidence to drive that uh, that strategy. So legislatively, through the administration, we've been doing some good work. Uh, but in terms, back to the Medicaid population, that's one population that is ha has been disadvantaged because of the, the reimbursement issue and not having the resource to pay for their care. Yes. I just add a fifth leg to the chair. <laughs> um, one thing that the foundation is, is doing is um, a Project ECHO, which I don't know if everyone's familiar with that, but it's a model where you have um, specialist experts that train primary care physicians via um, telephonic, um, via the web. But we're trying to get primary care doctors to feel more comfortable about treating pain so you don't get to the point where they're being prescribed or you know, they feel more comfortable rather than going out given the lack of specialists. So that's another area that we're trying to build capacity in the community. That's a great, it's a great point, right, Rachel. And it's, it's you know, how we talk about pain and how we treat it. Uh, and we've traditionally, as a, as a culture, as a society, treated it with, with medication. Uh, and there are other ways. And there are hospitals in New Jersey that are and their, their EDs are uh, opioid-free uh, for most folks. Uh, and, and so they're, they're trying to use those strategies, but you know, ECHO is a terrific program, and Dr. Aurora from New Mexico is, is terrific. Uh, and one last thing on the, on the opioid uh, issue is the sort of ESPER program that we went out to, uh, and Citizen Action invited me to go to Massachusetts last year, uh, and we observed what is the city of Gloucester, Massachusetts, uh, the, city, the, the city government, the local governing body, and the Board of Education has partnered uh, in the screening tool. So it's a, it's a verbal screening tool that they use in the schools and they use in the community. And they've literally gotten like hundreds and hundreds of people in the small town, well, it's not a small town, but small enough in Gloucester, uh, into care. And so that's one of the pieces of legislation that we're going to move uh, in the next uh, session after January. Uh, for our school system. It's a, it's a verbal screening tool uh, that identifies kids at risk and refers to the treatment when necessary. So it's been a, it, the evidence is in in Massachusetts and other places uh, to get these kids the help they need when they need it. Because, you know, a lot of parents are in denial. I've gone to some of my school districts and some of the boards have talked to the, to the board members, and they're reluctant to put up a poster in the school that says, if you know someone who's overdosed, call 911. You'll be safe. You won't be arrested. They're like, we really shouldn't do that because the parents are going to get mad at us. Well, when someone overdoses and they die, then, you know, it's another thing. Um, I feel like, uh, we, you know, prevention and, and public health and population health are things that keep coming up over and over again. And I feel like these are important things that we should, we should talk about. Um, one question, that it's, it's, I think it's a, we can answer it quickly, is about uh, what percentage of the long-term care population is affected by the opioid crisis? Medicaid long-term care. I don't know that, but I believe uh, DHS said about 40 
thousand give or take Medicaid patients were in treatment. Does that does anybody know if that can anybody else confirm that? Okay. I, I will have to check, but I, I believe it was in the tens of thousands of people, not long-term care, but Medicaid total, which seems Treatment like, meaning but, outpatient? I don't know. That was the question. I didn't get a drill-down definition, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to get back to that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the federal issue. I feel like um, that is such an elephant in the room. Um, Rachel, can you, I, I don't know if you want to take this on, but tell us what your Seeing at Nicholson, I, I know you don't track, you know, federal pu public issues like that, but um, what are you hearing from, from the programs that you work with um, about this? I mean, what's the concern? What, what are they doing, um, as, given this time, time of uncertainty? I think everyone's sort of treading water at this point. I'm, I, you know, there's so many uncertainties right now. Um, you know, we're in the process of strategic planning and, you know, we're coming up with some goals, but we understand that you need to be flexible and depending upon what happens in January. Um, and, you know, every day is different in Washington. So I think it's just people are making plans, but with the understanding that there may need to be adjustments depending upon the outcomes. Yeah, let me just, um, you know, we're obviously monitoring the, the situation all the time as well. Um, and some of the things that uh, we're seeing coming out of uh, CMS are obviously a preference for things like work requirements, co-pays, um, along with, uh, as we've seen in, in the legislation, uh, caps um, and block grants, uh, which uh, we believe would just lead to cutting of services, narrowing of eligibility, um, and less people getting care. But those are some of the ideas, uh, certainly, that is, are being talked about within the administration. Matt, do you want to say There has been a lot of attention to uh, the th what's called the 1332 waiver. So this is for um, the um, exchange population. Uh, and the idea is that you could use federal dollars to subsidize the premiums there and bring the premiums down. Uh, Alaska and Minnesota was approved. But Oklahoma, I think, just pulled their application. Um, so there's a little bit of cold water that's been thrown on it. But a lot of states, including ours, um, are looking at the potential for doing that and making more, uh, making the insurance more affordable in the above Medicaid level. And we've not submitted, New Jersey no. has not submitted a waiver no. on that. Okay. So the, um, talk about the, the governor or the president's executive order yeah. Uh, yeah. that would allow insurance companies to sell across state lines or to purchase across state lines. And New Jersey's a unique position here, and we have a, a lot of consumer protections in this state, and we have uh, several dozen mandates that uh, uh, that uh, patients enjoy. Uh, and if it is that, if we're if insurance companies from say North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, they're uh, that um, call that state home, sell insurance plans in New Jersey that don't have the kind of protections that we have. It may be an inexpensive policy, but certainly you get what you pay for. So if if those healthier lives uh, want to have an indispensable policy and they sort of get cherry-picked out of New Jersey, that leaves the rest of the marketplace to cover, you know, the, the risk is then not spread across, you know, healthy lives as well. So um, does anybody know what a MIWA is? You can raise your hand if you do. Okay, you'll need help. So uh, it's a multiple <laughs> employer welfare group. association. And so it's really an association plan in New Jersey. And so whether it's the funeral directors or the, an NJ car 
for a variety of different uh, associations joined together to purchase insurance. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a federal, the MIWAs are a sort of federal uh, creation, but they sort of a, an ERISA hybrid. And in New Jersey, every state gets to tweak it a little bit, unlike other ERISA plans, which you really can't uh, have much effect with or on. Uh, and so New Jersey, uh, those literally thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals who are members of the, uh, one of the two MIWAs in New Jersey enjoy the same protections that everyone else does in the commercial market. Uh, being able to sell association plans from other states into New Jersey uh, would put those benefits at risk. And so, you know, again, we're talking about losing, potentially losing the coverage that you enjoy here as an employee of the, one of those association plans uh, because it is that you've now enrolled, or your employer's enrolled you in a plan that doesn't offer the same protections or benefits. So, scary time. Erhard, um, do you still have a mic? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, tell us about, I mean, I'm curious about the cross-state lines issue, but um, how would that impact Medicaid, or would it? I mean, it, I'll just say this. It's very unclear. Like, the devil's in the details. <laughs> it's extraordinarily unclear how that would actually work. Um, you know, providers sign up with four health plans, so they're supposed to manage 40 now. I mean, that's, I, that seems like an impossibility. Uh, Medicaid programs are inherently sort of state-based. So I, I think um, it speaks to, I think, uh, my comment. The larger issue, and one of the challenges that a lot of the lobbying groups or the trade associations would tell you in Washington, D.C. right now is it's unclear who and unclear how decisions are being made. And I sort of feel like maybe the administration just wants a win, uh, and so they're going to sign an executive order. I'm not sure anybody actually understands how any of that's going to work. Uh, so that's sort of you know the challenge. We, um, we're getting a couple of questions about um, Medicaid providers. And I think this is, and the question is, it comes back to rates, I think. There are a couple of questions. Some are about rates. Some are about providers. But um, but this is a question. I mean, this is something that I know we've been hearing about for years. Um, you can have the Medicaid card, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee you access, um, even if you can find a, a doctor who who accepts it. Um, I I don't know where to start on that. But is is this something that you what? Absolutely, sure. Um, well, where do, how do we how do we address this? Right, access is the key, right? I mean, the idea is that without enough um, re in reimbursement, we won't have enough physicians participating. Which is, you know, Heather showed the slide before. We're at forty-five percent. A couple things. I mean, our project talked about the use of physician extenders and telehealth and other ways to to uh, improve access. But actually, Medicaid um, took a step over the last few years to actually increase rates for certain providers, uh, it's something called a MAP program. I'm sure Earhart's familiar with it because he has to administer it. Um, but the idea is that if the physicians are affiliated with Rutgers or Cooper or any of the state's academic medical institutions, they'll receive the average commercial rate. Um, that is a significant increase in provider rates. So uh, again, to the state's credit, they recognize there's an access issue and are trying to do something about it. The, the, on the counter to that, uh, the ACA required that all primary care be um, increased to the Medicare level for two years, and the state um, actually rescinded that when they could after two years because of the uh, cost. But it looks like they're looking at a, a more targeted approach to putting money into the system to try and improve access. And if, and if I could also comment, I mean, that's uh, been a, a serious issue for many years. 
Um, one of the other ways that we're working to try and improve access um, is to make it easier for other providers to be able to provide care, whether they be advanced practice nurses who, through uh, changes to our scope of practice laws, would be able to uh, provide healthcare services to the full extent of their training and accreditation. Uh, we've uh, worked with the administration to change some regulatory barriers to allow uh, qualified certified home health aides to provide medication uh, to folks who are living at home. Um, and so I think we have to, you know, always be looking at the full uh, the full picture in terms of who our providers are within the healthcare system. And expanding that pool or expanding how you think about that pool. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Just a little bit. So it's, to me, it's, it's also kind of a real chicken and an egg problem, right? So, so medical schools are not producing people that do provide Medicaid services. The best and brightest of the doctors are going into dermatology and plastic surgery. So the, but there's a huge shortage of psychiatrists in, in New Jersey. The Half the psychiatrists don't take any kind of insurance at all, much less Medicaid insurance. Um, dental services for people with mental illness and is almost, is almost impossible. We have to rely on clinics for the most part for, for that kind of population. So it's, it's a, where do you start? I mean, you, you, at the moment the rates are so unattractive and the profession is so unattractive that you're not even bringing people into, into the profession at all and then leaving this whole population un unserved. So just a comment, and this is a very, very, I mean, we could talk all day about this and the problems behind it, but just, just two comments. One is, um, if my CFO were here, he'd kill me for saying this. I think we put in $60 million of the state, the state programs to increase access and increase payment rates. I think all that's to physicians this year for us. So. You know, we're half the market, so probably another 60 on the other side, something around those. But it's, it's, it's you know, it's, in the grand scheme of things, is it a huge amount of dollars? I mean, it's a good chunk. It's a good start. We still have a long ways to go. Um, but regarding access, and, you know, I talked about, you know, our care managers out in the field. We've got some wonderful stories about the role that we play in helping to get access and helping to get members who have complicating factors. And on our website, we've got a bunch of great member stories. One of them is about uh, a young man who uh, has hemophilia, and he had needed double knee replacement, and he was done. Medicaid. And um, we called every doctor in the state. We worked for months to be able to get him access to care, found a specialist that would take his case, worked out a special arrangement with him, got his knee replacements done, right? Very complicated because he's got hemophilia as well. And so the video has him kicking a ball around now, right? And he's back at work. He's doing a really good job, but he was done. So there's a lot of great stories around that, um, but, uh, but there's always opportunity for improvement. It's something that I know all the health plans spend a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time trying to improve. I guess one other thing I would add is sometimes it's not even about getting to the physician, but physically getting to the physician. And transportation and things like that are also really important to think about. So um, it's capacity, but it's also practical matters that prevent people from getting to the doctor. And I mean, those are very challenging. I, I heard this story many times um, from uh, uh, um, Barry Ostrowski who, Ostrowski, who heads Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas. Um, I guess they created a program to help seniors um, 
avoid slips and falls in their home. And the thinking is you invest on the front end, you have less seniors coming into the emergency room. There's someone in this room probably runs this program and can tell the story much better than I can. But um, essentially, it, it, then there was a problem in getting reimbursed for that the work that was involved in that program. And, and they couldn't find a, a Medicaid code or something to do that. So um, you know, the, even recognizing the need for those wraparound services, there still are these challenges within the program and actually getting them paid for. Um, Earhart, we're getting a couple questions about, um, more specifically, about um, some of the value-based work that you're doing um, at Horizon. I know this is a big, a big deal, um, and the episodes of care. Um, tell us a little more specifically about what those models, how those models work, if you can. I think there's three big chunks, right? And so, and I'm sorry, one of the questions. Sure. Sorry, qual the quality metrics. I think one of the questions we're we're really interested in is. How do you measure quality out of that? And your last comment, Barry, should have come to us because we would have figured out how to pay for it. But <laughs> um, the uh, and, and we do pay for grab bars, ramps every day. We do a lot of that work. Uh, so first, let me do the quality piece. So quali the, the the most um, I guess uh, broad, most broadly used quality set is called HEDIS. Um, so it's depending on the member and their condition. There's a whole set of different measures. Uh, it, we, we, you know, have a variety of ways of collecting the data. Uh, there's benchmarks out there that are set by the state uh, and other plans, and it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a, a lift. It's sort of a, you know, all-year type of process. So HEDIS, you can kind of go out there and look at it, um, is, is probably uh, the primary quality measure that, that the state uses. With long-term care and some of the new, newer programs for the more complex folks, there's other measures out there as well. Uh, we spend a lot of time on our dual eligibles, um, DSNP, and so there's a whole rating called STAR rating out there. A lot of HEDIS measures are within that. So it's all stuff to go and look at, and you can sort of see where we've gone with that. Uh, regarding value-based, in my mind, you know, there's the it's, there's a, our strategy, there's a scale, right? So a scale starts with, um, hey, provider, here's an issue. Um, if you can reduce readmissions, uh, we'll split the savings with you. So it's kind of a bonus, right? And then you move to say, well, so maybe that's step one. Once we sort of figure that out, step two might be, all right, so let's um, look at a, a certain type of procedure, a hip replacement, a knee replacement. Uh, we, you know, maybe it's a bundle of care where we can basically say, for everybody that this happens to, we're going to pay you this much amount of money. If you can do better than that, then you you know, sort of keep the difference. If you do worse than that, then, you know, that's a different conversation, right? Um, and so that starts to align incentives. That starts to get the providers to sort of think about um, how do they be more efficient. Because, you know, in the old days when we, uh, and, and I hate, you know, hopefully I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but the members, the, the, the patients that hospitals made the most money from were the ones they did the worst job with. Because every time somebody got readmitted, you know, then the hospital, you get them out too early, they come right back, well, you get to charge a whole bunch more money for a readmission. Let's keep kicking them out and bringing them back, right? So that's perverse incentive. I'm not saying that we would do that necessarily, but it's a perverse incentive. We've got to change that, right? The full model, like the, the third piece really is, uh, is, I guess we'll call it full risk, where we say, hey, provider, here's, um, here's what I get for that member. I'm going to give that, you know, a chunk of that to you. And... All their costs are going to go into this bucket, and if it's above, that's you know again you're at risk. If it's below, um, 
then you keep it, right? Or, or, or a share of it or something along those lines. So that's sort of full risk. There's some providers here that are getting to that point, but they've got to be very advanced to be able to take on that risk. There's licensing requirements in New Jersey and all that type of stuff. Generally, that's sort of the pathway that we're moving down. And we have folks, um, uh, I think by 2018, we'll have some folks in that full risk bucket. Um, but generally, the 175,000 members I talked about are sort of spread amongst the first two that I talked about earlier. And I'm sorry. So go ahead. I do a cautionary tale on, on some of this stuff? Yes. So, so my clients are all people with um, severe and persistent illnesses, chronic illnesses. So it could be mental illness, it could be physical illnesses, um, developmental disabilities. So, so let's blame CMS at the moment, leave the private plans at the moment. So one of, one of their problems, one of their benchmarks. They're not here, so it's easy to Yeah, play. right. I can deal with them at the moment. And I don't even know who's there anymore. But anyway. Um, one of their benchmarks is readmission rates, right? So, so a lot of our clients with uh, developmental disabilities have a lot of difficulty swallowing aspiration. They're confined to bed a lot and things like that. So they will come develop pneumonia with some frequency, right? So they'll come into the hospital. The hospital will treat them for, for pneumonia relatively quickly, get them back out the door, stabilize them, get them back out to the home, and then they'll develop pneumonia again. But if they come back in the hospital within 30 days, now the hospital's concerned that they've got this mark of a readmission within 30 days. So the next thing I know, I'm on an ethics consultation where the hospital wants to do a do not admit this person to the hospital ever again kind of thing, where in essentially saying no more treatment for this particular person. So you've got to be very, very, and it's totally inappropriate. You've got to continue to provide treatment for that individual. They are enjoying their life when they're out of the hospital. So this idea of coming back is not antithetical to them. So you've got to be very, very careful, it seems to me, in developing some of these benchmarks. If I can just one, build on that for one second, because we actually got a question about how managed care works for people with significant disabilities, um, profound uh, disabilities, needing private duty nursing, uh, many hours of personal care assistance. Different scenario, obviously. But I'm, I'm just curious if some of these, these cost savers if, if this is where they come, you know, the rubber meets the road for, for, for clients like, like yours. Yeah so, yeah, so let me do my bad story and then he can do the good story. Um, so I get the complaints, right? So I get everything that doesn't work. So I don't know about the people that do work. But, but before we went to Medicaid managed care in New Jersey, we had about 30 cases a year involving access to long-term private duty nursing and in-home supports and services. We now have 300 cases a year where the managed care organization is either trying to terminate or reduce services to these particular individuals. And sometimes it's the same person every year. The person's getting 30 hours a week, we go in and they try to reduce it. We go in, we save it, we get an agreement, next year we're back and doing the same kind of thing all over again. So, so we have kind of a conspiracy theory kind of problem with this kind of thing. And again, we only get the complaints. So right. it may be working in some places, but I think there's a, a real concern that a lot of, of a lot of people who need a lot of these services that they're one assessment away and one failed appeal away from not getting any services at all. And without naming names, I'm sorry, just are, is there, is, are there trends in those complaints in that they, they come from certain providers or certain payers or is there a, do you see, a, yeah, pattern, that's the word. Yeah, so, so I think, so let's go back. So, so my data, again, is tip of the iceberg kind of thing. And, and yes, we have one provider that's probably a little bit more difficult than others. One that we can probably resolve things better with than others. But I think, that as, as other people have already pointed out, data in New Jersey is horrible. I mean, we really don't have any of this information about what works, what doesn't work, 
who's the doing what and all, this, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so again, so when in our discussions with the state, it's, a, oh, we can't wait for managed care. We can't wait for future service because then we'll have data so we know what works, uh, which is kind of like the backwards way of doing things, it seems to me. But, but yeah, so we have just horrible data about what works and, and, and the kinds of uh, experiences that people are having. Yeah. Just a comment, right? So the yeah. DD population, technically, right, the, the, a lot of the services are carved out, okay. right, of managed care. So when we think about managed MLTSS, it's what it's called, the long-term care. Is this blended rate one? Because we got a question about that specifically. Oh, getting technical. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I have a citation. <laughs> that, um. where, where the managed care organization is sort of responsible for their care, you know, in the community or in the nursing facility, medical, traditional, non-traditional, all that stuff. The DD is very different, right? It's very, it's fragmented. And so, and, and I know you're seeing probably everything. So as we transition to the program, um, I mean, there is a, a very transparent and robust appeal process, but if you're responsible for everything, I mean, un, the health plans understand and, and ultimately the way to win with a more complicated member is to get ahead of the issue. It's, it's pretty, if you're short-sighted as a provider, as a, as a, as a, um, uh, as a payer, and uh, and you don't get the services they need, and they can't stay in the community, it, it's going to be a problem. Your health plan's not going to be around for very long, uh, and so if it's unfortunate if people are taking that short-term view, it's not the right view, and it won't last for very long because the the, the finances aren't going to be there. Yeah, I just wanted to um, just add a little bit more on the idea of value-based purchasing, um, and uh, you know. I think probably the most significant change to Medicaid uh, beyond the expansion and the ACA was was the recent move to Medicaid managed long-term services and supports a couple years ago. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, a relatively small population, uh, but large cost drivers. And the system uh, is built around a theory anyway that there is an incentive for the plans to look at uh, the best least cost care. Um, Medicaid now uh, on the long-term care side uh, is starting to dip its toes into value-based purchasing with uh, nursing homes. Um, when the program started, uh, it started with something called an any willing provider, meaning that any willing provider uh, who wanted to contract with the plan could contract with the plan um, as long as they met various certifications and regulatory standards and things like that. Um, we know that there are a number of quality issues uh, in the nursing home industry here in New Jersey. Uh, we rank very poorly, for example, when it comes to bed sores. We rank very poorly when it comes to uh, transitions, meaning folks who are uh, in a nursing home going to a hospital uh, um, and and things like that. So uh, the state is now moving to a system uh, called any willing qualified provider um, and looking at seven measures of quality, uh, including uh, bed sores, um, falls, um, I can't remember all seven of them, um, uh, and also consumer satisfaction. Uh, we worked with volunteers uh, in the ombudsman's office, many of whom uh, are volunteer advocates for residents of nursing homes and talked about how important that measure is. And so the system is rolling out slowly, um, although probably kind of in warp time with when you think about the Medicaid environment. <laughs> um, 
But we are uh, hoping uh, that we will, through this system, begin to actually uh, incent quality in a way that improves it. Thank you. Um, just one thing, I, we, somebody said that, uh, and Joe, maybe you can clarify this as well, uh, personal care, private duty nursing and personal care assistance service for persons with DD are not carved out of Medicaid managed care. That's correct. It's, um, that those, MLTSS is still a managed care, for DD people is still managed care in New Jersey. So you're both right. There you go. Okay. Um, let, before we move on, I just want to ask Matt, uh, managed care, we also got a question about why uh, the state and Maximus is, is slow to get people into managed care. What's your sense of how we're doing and sort of on the bigger picture, how is it working Broadly. Right. Well. There, there used to, well, there's a couple things going on. Um, there used to be, I think it was three months. Uh, so you obtained Medicaid eligibility, you had up to three months to pick a health plan. It might have even been six months at one point. It was really um, designed to be, you know, um, flexible in that way. And the recent waiver back in 2012, the state reduced that to 10 days. <laughs> so there's an enrollment broker out there that should be assisting um, applicants who become eligible in picking a health plan. Um, so, you know, whether or not that's working, uh, you know, again, our data suggests that for some populations like maternity services where mom shows up late um, and the provider's looking to provide services that get paid right away, um, it's not. Uh, so that's a real challenge still. Uh, somebody asked about the global option. Does that still, in, uh, still exist in Medicaid and Medica Medicaid, Medicaid? Yeah, different name, right? I choose home New Jersey, I think, is now a global option. Yes, no? Anybody out there? Uh, it's it's uh, getting people out of nursing homes into back into the community. Yeah, it's, it still exists. It's uh, part of the uh, money follows the person thing. I'm, right. Again, what's in existence anymore? I have absolutely no idea. But yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's an office. I choose home New Jersey is the office in right. New Jersey. We work with them to try to get people out of, uh, out of nursing homes back into community sometimes. Again, so... It's a, difficult, it's a problem with people who are under 50 with severe uh, chronic disabilities. We're fighting with a nursing home right now which says refuses to allow somebody to go home when we want them to be able to leave home and live there independently. What, um, Rachel, do you work in, in um, I mean, you must have looked at some of the other states and how they run some of their Medicaid programs. Tell us, are there things that jump out as, as opportunities maybe that New Jersey's missing or, I mean, I know these are not sort of one size fits all programs, but. Right, so obviously every state's different, but yeah. as part of the initial work that the Medicaid 2.0 folks did, we traveled to a number of states that have specific innovations and one that jumped out was Ohio. And um, unfortunately, Matt and Linda didn't physically get there due to transportation issues, but. Um, uh, we, Traffic. Yeah. <laughs> We met with the um, Medicaid director and their chief transformation officer, and they one thing that was really st st stood out was that they had the support of the governor. They had a direct line to the governor. Um, they spoke when they spoke; they were speaking on behalf of the governor, and they had that authority to convene and to um, enact change. And um, centralizing it under that one position, I think, really helped them to make a lot of changes. And Matt, I don't know if you want to add to that. What was really remarkable was that they, you know, we went into the idea of value-based purchasing with, you know, okay, if we set it, if we say the state should set a target, let's say 50% of all their payments should be value-based purchasing by 2020, they'll figure it out. 
They know how to engineer it, and they'll achieve that objective. Ohio told us, don't do that. Uh, they said, that's backwards. What you need to do is establish clear, definitive methods for doing it and have the plans all do the same thing. The providers, the patients will all be better for it. Um, and so we've, you know, one of the things they did is the episodes of care, it's very standardized in states like Ohio, Arkansas, uh, and Tennessee, they lay out the specifics of how the episode is going to work, and the plans execute that. So uh, I think that was a big lesson learned for us. Um, I know that standardization is something that comes up in 2.0. Um, you talk about uh, quality standards, and, and there are a number of other ways that it, 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 it seems like we can do a better job benchmarking. Absolutely. We had one survey, I think, um, was it 800 or so uh, quality metrics? Amanda's out there. She knows. Um, in different, you know, iterations of uh, innovation. Um, and so, you know, they went through and actually identified the 30 core or 35 core standards that should be used. And, and part of our work on the episode of Care for Maternity is to identify a handful that everyone can understand and achieve. I know that's been an issue for the um, for the ACOs, some of the Medicaid ACOs. They they purposely streamed down because they, they felt like they were just trying to do too much. And let me just add, a lot of this innovation and quality reporting is expensive. I mean, I'll, I'll say it. Earhart won't, but he's paying for it. It's very expensive to keep track of all these things, especially when you're not sure that they're even going to um, produce the results that you want in terms of improving outcomes. That was going to be my comment, is this value-based stuff is very complicated. It's There's still a lot of innovation. There's still a lot of... Um, iterate, iteration going on out there. So part of the danger, just something to think about, if, if the state sort of mandates one model, does that, number one, assume that we've all figured it out? Uh, number two, then does that stop future innovation? A lot of times in this value-based uh, world, uh, a contract with dollars and incentives is one thing, but being able to deliver the information when the doctor needs it, how he needs it, and then being able to get that information back, uh, that's really the, a lot of times the key to making a value-based arrangement work. And that's difficult, right, to, to do and also difficult to mandate. So just something to think about as we sort of move through this. Uh, Senator, I think you, I don't know if you have to go yet, but um, one question, I don't know if you can answer this or not, but uh, I'm sure you can. Um, state health benefits. I have to go, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> if not, you can fake it. Um, state health benefits program moving toward value-based programs. How how is that? Do you know what the state is doing with their own workforce and, and how that's evolving? Well, I know that the uh, that the members of the board or the committee are working toward that goal, and uh, there's they've had their meetings, and I think they're going to propose or they've already proposed um, some small changes to that. So, what will happen between now and January, whatever, and after that? Will be to, will be determined, but I think that they've been real serious. I mean, the members of the board, the members that uh, oversee the sale benefits program and school employees benefits program, have done a pretty good job on a lot of these issues. And so I'm hopeful that that we could work with you know organized labor with the administration on trying to find ways in which to save money, provide better care. You know, it's always everyone's goal, uh, but but not let the politics get in the way of that. And I'm sorry, before you do go uh, for real. Um, Tell, what's your wish for, uh, I mean, what's your sort of message to the next administration when it comes to, to Medicaid? Um, I mean, what do they have to, where do they have to focus first, almost, if you, if you will? Well, I think that they, they have, they, I shouldn't say that, because I have spoken with one of the campaigns, uh, and, uh, but 
what they should be focusing on is, and I think what the Institute is doing, what I have an internal work group that Linda Schwimmer is uh, heading up, a uh, reform work group as well, uh, to think about, you know, what happens after January, whatever the swearing in is, and, and really have a plan. And it really is sort of an a la carte of options because we don't know what will happen. We don't know what uh, changes will happen in Washington, how that will impact New Jersey. And so if it's a block grant, you know, or if it's a per capita block grant or some version of one, uh, how will that impact New Jersey and what which should be what should be we, uh, we be prepared for uh, and how do we respond? Uh, and, uh, and, and in a variety of other issues uh, in healthcare, but on the Medicaid side especially. And uh, because, you know, any change in of, from resources from Washington, whether it's SCHIP or Medicaid, uh, will have a significant impact on our budget and our ability to make up any difference. Uh, we, we have about 800,000 enrolled in Medicaid. Uh, some of it's SCHIP, some of it's a combination of, of the expansion kids, and some of it's just straight Medicaid. Uh, and they are dependent on that care. And then we have the parents as well that are part of that also. And so, you know, what do we do? And I think the message to the next administration is, whoever it's a woman or a man, uh, is how to protect those who are already receiving the care uh, and what will the cost be. But be prepared for that because, you know, it's going to, a lot happens when, you're, when the, your hand comes off the Bible. Um, there, there are lots of expectations. And once you start to open all the drawers and open every door and have the real meetings with those who have been in government for, you know, years, you're going to understand very quickly, you know, what the challenges are. Uh, it's difficult as a candidate to understand everything uh, and to be prepared for everything. But on the healthcare side, I know that both campaigns, I'm sure, I know at least the Murphy campaign, I'm sure the Guadano campaign, you know, has uh, sort of a healthcare transition type of team uh, or, or individuals that are thinking about you know, what, uh, what the future looks like for New Jersey, particularly in the Medicaid piece. But it's really healthcare overall. Uh, it's insurance. It's, you know, what do we do? Even in the absence of something you know, draconian happening in Washington, what should we do in New Jersey to improve access to lower costs and do all the things that we try to do? But you know the the healthcare industrial complex is pretty complicated, and uh, you know it's a it's a cost issue, it's a quality issue, and it's an access issue. And I think that for a lot of my constituents and those around the state, uh, whether it's an individual that's in the ACA or someone who's in Medicaid or someone who has insurance through their employer. Uh, the, a lot of them wake up every day not knowing whether or not it's going to continue. And so it's stressful for them. And so it's really, it's, it's critical that the next governor prepare for what could be worst-case scenario and work backwards from there. Don't hope and wish that it doesn't happen, uh, but think that it may or will, and how do we respond to that. Yeah, Matt, I, don't, I know that the 2.0 um, that you talked a little bit in the, in the process of presenting that at least about, you know, of course, you presented it at a time when we were all, you know, freaking out about the ACA falling apart. So, um, you know, here we are, and it still hasn't, but there's such uncertainty. Um, I mean, a new administration taking that on and all these other challenges, yeah, how do you? Sure. Our, our advice would be, again, I, we, we think there should be an Office of Healthcare Transformation at the governor's office level to oversee all of this change. And secondly, the, the MCO contracts and value-based purchasing. I'll just you know, to the point of where are we going to get the money? Linda and I were at a conference in Washington last week. 30 to 40% of all healthcare is avoidable. It's unnecessary surgery and the follow-ups, complications, and there are ways of getting at that that we really haven't fully 
identified and embraced yet. Uh, I, these, I just want to say, if, that's, we're going to talk a lot about that in the maternity panel this afternoon. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that is one example, but there's cancer treatments that false diagnosis, people are treated. So how do we get at the avoidable cost? I think that'll be a real challenge, and Medicaid should be focused on that as well. Rachel, do you have any thoughts for the sort of changing administrations? I mean, we're in such a, we're in such a traumatic, unstable time, um, and these departments um, have lost a lot of people, um, a, lot of, a lot of brain drain over the years. Um, and they're going through some really significant changes, too. Um, there's an enormous shift. You know, probably everybody knows they're moving the Department of Mental Health and Addiction. One thing that we've um, tried to do uh, with the Center for Healthcare Strategies is we created a Medicaid Academy. And um, they're providing training to the initial round was just Medicaid staff. Now they've broadened it to um, invite other agencies. And we've been really impressed with the willingness of the state to allow their um, their staff to attend. So we're trying, re with recognition that you know some people are departing, to really provide information to those who are still there to help educate them. So it's not just the high-level folks that are understanding, but trying to you know instill additional information for the you know second level down or third level down. Yeah, so if I may, so, so I, would, I would also indicate that for some significant amount of the population, this is also a civil rights issue. It's not just a financial issue. It is people depending for their lives on the continuation of these programs, being able to get out of bed in the morning, being able to go to work, being able to go to, to school, all these kinds of things without um, sustaining some level that we're, that we're at now in New Jersey. We used to have 25,000 people living in rooming and boarding houses, substandard rooming and boarding houses in New Jersey. Now we discharge more people to supportive housing programs than we do to rooming and boarding houses. If Medicaid is impacted, if there's a severe cut of resources, we're going back to the old school, and I don't think anybody wants to do that. Haven't we, I mean, just when you talk about uh, healthcare and Medicaid as a right, I mean, I feel like we have come so far in the last year, year and a half. Um, I mean, there, a couple of years ago, people were not protesting in the streets over health care. And there have now been weekly, weekly protests at some, um, you know, representative uh, congressman's office in New York, in, in New Jersey. Um, how, I mean, we're in a different place, right, than we were a few years ago. Yeah. When it comes, I, to, when it comes to awareness of health care as an issue and, and as a right. right. So, so, yeah, so, so every once in a while, is, there, is it an entitlement or not an entitlement? I don't think it's an entitlement. I mean, I don't want to get into that discussion, right. but I think it's part of the social contract. I mean, why have government if we're not going to provide these kinds of services? Um, education and health care, seems to me, are the very basic reasons that these days government should be existing. It's instructive to, th to look back at during the last presidential campaign. And when President Trump was railing against uh, the ACA and Obamacare. Uh, and then when he was elected and they began the, the initial conversations and bill drafts in Washington, in the House especially, uh, and then people in West Virginia who voted en masse for President Trump and others who are uh, receiving Medicaid services uh, around the country said, no, wait a minute, that's, uh, that's me. And this will impact me. So whether, it's, whether you were in the ACA uh, or you were a Medicaid enrollee, you are now impacted, and people began to really understand what that meant. And as you know, the polling is, suggests that you know, more and more people approve of the ACA than pre-December, November, whatever, uh, for the last election, because now they understand what Obamacare did for them, or their neighbors, or their family member. And so that's changed a lot in terms of the, 
the way in which people think about healthcare and are paying attention to what's happening. Yeah, and I, I was, uh, I would echo those comments. Um, I mean, as scary as the recent uh, repeal and replace fights have been, in some ways, I think it demonstrated how Medicaid has come of age, really, 50 years after its inception, um, and that it is now thought of as much more than a program for low income or poor people, and that is a fundamental piece of our healthcare fabric. And so, um, not to say that the threats are going away and they may not be there today and tomorrow, but I think when you saw in Congress uh, an awareness of what dismantling Medicaid would do across the country, whether it was a red state or a blue state or a purple state, um, I think that that was something we haven't seen before. I'd love for a second to build on a comment that uh, Senator Vitale said. Let's not forget, I mean, this stuff and all the things going on in D.C. and policy, that's confusing for me. Let's think about for a second our members, the Medicaid beneficiaries. And I'm surprised, I mean, we get phone calls and questions our care managers. Like when the first um, bill passed the House and it hits all over the news, we got lots and lots of people that said, did I just lose all of my benefits? And, you know, there's this process where, um, and it makes sense, right, where you have to, like, turn in, it's called redeterminations, where, you know, members have to turn in certain information so they stay on Medicaid. Well, you know, with the turnover um, in the state, sometimes maybe that process isn't working so good right now. Plus, people are generally nervous about, you know, deportation or all the news articles going on, and they're confused. And, you know, I kind of worry right now the general stress of the of the United States is very high with all the craziness going on, but it's not putting these folks in a very good position. So I'm worried a little bit about that. And you don't sort of see the effects of that for a little while, right? People are falling on and off. So that means they're not getting care if they're not eligible. And it's just an administrative hassle and it winds up costing everybody more money, more time, but most of all, uh, their well-being. And so, you know, that's a piece that, you know, it's easy to sort of lose when we're talking about all these headlines and all this crazy policy stuff. So. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that, um, that I know uh, the 2.0 plan gets into a little bit, is so it, and it always sort of surprises me, but some of these sort of nuts and bolts of how the program works and on the front end, literally getting people enrolled could be improved. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, this yeah. is uh, music to my ears. It's, it, commonly referred to as churn, but so many families lose eligibility because they didn't fill out the paperwork. Uh, and it might be for reasons they were using the wrong address, they threw it away. There could be any number of reasons when their status hasn't really changed. We think the state can do a lot better, states can do a lot better, although the Congress thought uh, the opposite. Uh, they, they're worried, you know, they want to go to six months redetermination. The state went to two-year redetermination for inmates in their waiver which we thought was interesting. They did that because the state pays 100% for the parolees' health care if they're not in Medicaid. If they're in Medicaid, the feds pay 90%, will, will be 90%. So there was a real financial incentive. We'd like to see that same redetermination platform extended to families uh, every two years. And that is not to say that the state should not be verifying eligibility. There are just different ways to do it. They can look electronically at tax returns, wage files, any number of uh, financial institutions' records to, to monitor and to also 
do a risk stratification of who are the folks that they're really worried about in terms of you know, gaming the system and getting eligibility, as opposed to just doing it to everyone. I mean, right now, it's, you know, one size fits all, and it's really inefficient. It costs the carriers, it costs the families, um, and it's costing the state. I mean, it's an expensive process to do an eligibility determination. Well, many years ago, we changed the way in which uh, family care uh, application looked. It was Kevin Ryan was a child advocate, and Jen Velez was in the department, and I'm dating myself, but we... I think I wrote a story about this when I worked for Gannett. I think you did. So there were, the, the application was literally, I think, 16 pages. Uh, and if you made one error, so I did a test with my then chief of staff, uh, or maybe it was my current chief of staff, I'm not sure. Fill out this application and let's send it in. And there was a small error. So it, and this is somebody with, you know, college degree and pretty smart. Uh, and, but it went to the, it went to the rejection pile uh, in, in the department. And so, and the pile is like this high. And so we decided that we were going to change the application process. We really worked on it for a long time and got into one page, two sides. And now it's back up to, I think, a few more pages again, which makes me crazy. But if you just made one mistake, one error, it was set aside. And you, eventually you would be contacted or you would contact them and say, hey, what happened to my application? So you know, barriers to enrollment are critical for you know, the average person. You know, I consider myself an average person. You're making a mistake on an application. I mean, the 16-page application was like a... Uh, like an application to Harvard, you know, it was just like this complicated, convoluted application. Almost you'd think if you were cynical that it was done intentionally to just really not want to enroll people as, as much as we could or capable of. And so barriers to enrollment are critical. And, you know, now with the ACA and, the, and the President Trump talking about cutting back the navigators and the money for them, and hopefully I understand that one of our more important and largest health insurers might be stepping up and helping with you know, getting people who are aware of the, the enrollment process for the ACA, again, the open great enrollment. Great news, can I report that? <laughs> no, I just I heard a rumor, I didn't mean if it's true or not, but so I think it's a great idea. Heard it here. Uh, but, um, you know, they're, we're gonna be losing people uh, again, uh, and because of the actions of Washington, if it's just by omission, if nothing else. I feel like, um, in, of course, when healthcare.gov, when the whole ACA was rolled out, um, you know, the website crash was such a, was such a, killer for the program. I mean, just as far as the message and the momentum, it was just, ugh. Um, but I mean, we have so many data issues uh, on our own state level here. Um, someone asked a good question. If you could pick one data issue and fix it, what would it be? Um, let's do a lightning round. Sure. I would love to see regional utilization. I'd like to see the state um, give us by... Tell us what that means. So what that <laughs> means is that we would see in Atlantic County how many spine surgeries were done per thousand versus in Essex County. When you start looking at regional variation, you start to identify where that maybe unavoid or avoidable utilization is happening. you got to drill down, yeah. Um, I'd like to see us, I don't know if this really answers the question, but to develop report cards for a variety of different services that we provide as a state. So we do that, we, you know, cardiac, there's a report card. We're trying to develop one for residential treatment for those people with substance abuse disorder. So really to be able to have the data, to understand the efficacy of all the things that we spend our money on, the programs that we think are great uh, or not so great. But really get to the data and find out what's wrong, what's right, what's right, what's wrong, and what can be fixed. But without that data, and data is certainly critical, uh, we're not gonna really be able to, I think, overall solve some of the more vexing problems and put that in a, in a publicly accessible oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, we would like to see uh, more uh, real-time 
data on long-term services and support spending, particularly on the various home and community-based services along with uh, institutional spending. Real time as opposed to past year? Wait, you yeah, so for example, our scorecard uh, has 2014 data. Okay. Um, and I know that uh, the 2017 picture then, yeah. uh, looks different, but we really have very little data to show. I don't even know where to begin. Um, <laughs> I think I'd, I'm, I'm thinking more of mental health now than, than some of the other programs about what's working and what doesn't work. How many people are jumping to the most invasive treatment without getting access to the least restrictive treatments first? So along the same lines, I think data, I, I, we got. there is a lot of it out there. Um, I, I think we can do a much better job using it intelligently to drive outcomes. Predictive analytics, I guess, comes to mind. So to me, that's the trend. I think for most people, primary care is what's most relevant. And if there's a way that we could have data that looks at FQHCs versus ambulatory versus pri you know, private practices and allow them to compare both outcomes as well as the cost of services would be really helpful. Um, we've talked about a lot of sort of interesting um, solutions with, with you know, shifting to value-based care, ACOs, I mean, just new models and new programs. How do you scale these things up? I mean, one of the things um, I covered an event a couple months ago, and there was a panel of physicians talking about value-based care. And it was just a panel of physicians. And um, no payers, no, no other interests. And, and it was very intriguing to hear what they had to say, because they, they, they buy into the philosophy, but they were saying it's just it is such a small change so far. It's such a tiny drop in the bucket. And they just did not see it sort of moving the needle in a big way. Um, so with that in mind, I mean, how, how far are we until these, some of these solutions make really turn things around or start to make an impact, impact on the bottom line? I think that varies significantly by state and within state, by provider, and within that, by payer. And, um, I think uh, Horizon generally has a number of initiatives, and the data would say that the needle is starting to move, uh, even outside of government programs. Still a lot more work to do, but it's, it's more than nothing. I mean, the needle is definitely starting to move in terms of value-based and partnerships. Uh, just I would say I was disappointed by uh, you know, the Fed's decision to slow down the bundled initiative. Of all the research that we've done, that seems to be the most effective in controlling cost and utilization so, and improving outcomes. Um, so with that in mind, you know, I'd like to see more of that. I think you know, for Medicaid, one of the challenges is the provider's own capabilities. Uh, for reporting and um, participation uh, there's and or credentialing even for something like a patient-centered medical home there's certain standards they have to meet so that presents a challenge what about ACOs um, Rachel I know we were and I've written a little bit about I mean I know that they're very frustrated some of them with particular insurance provider about not getting data. I think it's confusing because when you say ACO and then you say Medicaid I'm sorry, ACO. Medicaid ACO. No, no, but that's what I'm saying. People get confused because the model that was proposed for the Medicaid ACO is very different from what most people are used to hearing about with um, managed with a Medicare and uh, 
and commercials. So. Okay, I'm thinking of the Medicaid ACO, but that's only because. Yeah, no, I, I just think it, it's probably we're moving beyond that at this point. Okay. You know, I think that was some, that was an, an initial step, and now we're moving, you know, to the next step. So I think um, it was a good first start. What about other front-end investments? Um, somebody mentioned comprehensive pediatric medical daycare. I'm not even quite sure what that is, but. Um, the state actually provides that um, by regulation. There's a medical daycare program for children. Uh, it's for medically, you know, Complex. fragile children. Yep. You know, maybe ventilator-dependent child is a, a good example of that. Um, and I know the plans pay for it, so I'm not sure what the question is, but um, maybe it doesn't exist in enough, or there's not enough capacity in the state. And I guess the other question that it sort of to me, stems from that is sort of um, a question about how flexible Medicaid is in paying for some of these ancillary supportive services. Um, is that an area where, is that totally controlled by the feds and, and is there any room for? for yeah, I'll, I'll let Earhart talk about it more, but I, the idea with managed care was that there would have a lot more flexibility than the state would have, so. Um. Unfortunately, it's a complicated answer. I think generally, <laughs> generally, we're moving in the right direction, right, in terms of being able to pay for more non-traditional things in the community-based setting with MLTSS. Um, but you know, still moving in that direction. Ultimately, for me, we're, we're, I think you can mandate it, you can contract it. One of the, uh, the big initiatives that we think is very important, uh, and we've spoken, uh, you know, to many people about it, is this whole idea of integrating dual eligibles, because today the funding streams being separated actually uh, give us a perverse incentive in how the system works because if somebody does something good in the community, that savings goes back to Medicare and doesn't stay in the community. It doesn't stay in uh, the, the providers. I think a lot more can be done in the community if we take value-based and we take all of the money from Medicare and Medicaid and put it in one place. I think that can fundamentally change how money flows. I think that could put a whole bunch more money in community-based services. Um, and uh, I'd love to see that happen at some point. I think it's very important, and that won't cost anything. I think it winds up saving quite a bit, quite frankly. So then there are there are also uh, waivers, particularly for the DD community and the mental health community, which which allows um, the state through the Medicaid program to provide a lot more services than just straight medical care services. So it is the, the residential support and supportive housing, uh, supportive education, a variety of stuff like stuff like that. And the savings there come from by providing those services in the community, maintaining um, people's involvement with um, the community and providers and workers and stuff like that, you decrease at some end the higher end use of inpatient and other more expensive kinds of services. Um, that's strictly controlled by the, by the waiver process and at some point gets inflexible because every five years you gotta get this and getting changes is incredibly difficult and little tweaks that need to be done. Problem that we have now is, you know, are those services robust enough? Are the, are the um, rates good enough to maintain the system and things like that? So the theory, the, the base work is there, the foundation is there. The question is, can we, can we build on it and actually make it a viable system? We're just about out of time. Any final thoughts from anybody here? Final question? Thank you all very much. Um, thanks to our panelists. It's been a great conversation. For more information on NJ Spotlight and its programs, visit njspotlight.com. 
for everyone at NJ Spotlight. This is Steve Lubetkin. Thanks for listening, and take good care.